Well, hello there and welcome to the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast. This is your hostess, Laura Camacho, and I'm excited to be here with you today. As you know, this podcast is all about the little details in communication, the things that make the difference between good and great is all in the details and you know how to communicate you know how to form words and how to ask questions and write emails but it's the little difference between saying something that people understand and something that people want to comply with or they want to know more about it or they want to know more about whatever it is you're talking about they want to know you more as a person That's the power of communication. And if you would like to bring some expertise in a fun way, some training to your group at work, you know who to call. Hello at speakupwithlaura.com. The podcast is called Speak Up With Laura Camacho and the email and the website are all just Speak Up With Laura. We do workshops and I say we because sometimes I bring in extra people so it's not always just me but we do workshops on communication styles because there's the different styles that people communicate and it helps to understand if someone is process oriented or results oriented or idea oriented and so forth. There's four basic styles, executive presence, speaking with impact, team building communication, culture building communication, winning presentations. I don't teach a basic communication class, but I do teach an advanced communication as far as presentations are concerned. So if you want to take your presentation from okay to engaging and interesting and compelling and not be so nervous about it, you know who to call. It's hello at speakupwithlaura.com. Oh, one more thing on on our sponsor is that we have new content coming out about how to add more value to meetings. So just be on the lookout for that. But today's guest is Michael Bannessy, and he has written a book called Touch Matters, Handshakes, Hugs, and the New Science of How Touch Can Enhance Your Well-Being. And I don't know about you, but ever since COVID, I have been, I mean, I was a little awkward before (laughs) the lockdown. And I had an experience during the lockdown I'll share with the interview that really kind of freaked me out. When I first moved to Venezuela back in 1988, people would kiss as a greeting on one side. In France, I know they kiss two kisses. And that really just, I just could not stand that. I would just stick out my hand and shake their hand because I didn't want to be kissing strangers, but I got over that. Anyway, more about Michael. He is an award-winning professor and he's a professor in social neuroscience. So it's about how we interact and our brains. And he's also a science communicator. So all you science nerds are in for a treat today. He has written over 100 scientific publications, and he has been featured in various outlets, including the BBC, Cosmopolitan, ESPN, National Public Radio, The Times. And now he's going to be on the Speak Up with Laura Camacho podcast, and he's won a lot of prizes, including a medal from the British Psychological Society for Outstanding Contributions to Psychology. So he's a British dude. We're going to get to enjoy his accent today. So, without further ado, I bring you Michael Bannessy. So, Michael, 
first of all, thank you for coming on the show and tuning in from England. That's very exciting for us. There's people on this podcast who are from all over the planet, but I think the audience is primarily resident of the United States. But Michael, tell us, why did you become a neuroscientist? And it's like a social neuroscientist. What were you thinking when you were a young student thinking, oh, I'm going to study brain? Well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I suppose what drove me into neuroscience, I've always been fascinated by how people interact with one another. I've been a people watcher from as long as I can remember. And of course, at the heart of how we do anything in the world, whether that's interacting with somebody else, whether that's I don't know, doing work by ourselves, whatever it happens to be, our brains are central to that process. So I quickly, very early on in my career, kind of moved from just wanting to understand people and people watch on the psychology side of it to actually understand the biology behind the psychology. Uh, that's really what neuroscience is all about, particularly when it comes to two people or multiple groups of people interacting. That's social neuroscience. It's all about the brain basis of social interaction. And my career somewhat I suppose it's come a bit more full circle though, because it started off that way. But as I then throughout my own career started to get more involved in things like senior executive teams and management and stuff like that myself, I became, again, much more back interested in the behavior and that social interaction. So the beautiful thing for me about social neuroscience is I get to study the brain, the biology, but I also study the behavior as well. And I get to bring those two things together to become probably even more confused than I was in the first place, because people are quite tricky to understand. That's for sure. So, do you identify more as an introvert or an extrovert? Yeah, I would say I'm more introverted than extroverted. Yeah, there's a bit of context in that, right? So, I think in different contexts, maybe we can play out in different ways. And sometimes you might play a role. If I'm giving a big public talk, I might look like I'm extroverted, but actually at heart, I'm introverted. But I kind of prepare myself beforehand and go in and say, well, here we go. And let's put on that persona and yeah, try and put it out there. But yes, at heart, probably I've got an introverted nature. People who go do these deep dives into the science, I think you have to have a little bit of introversion. Otherwise, you can't sit still long enough to do, do all the studying <laughs> that you need to do. But I think most people that are listening would kind of feel the same. You know, if we were all independently wealthy. We would just not be the life of the party, but work and other vocations call us to the public and to engage with people and share ideas. And so that's what we do. Well, I ask that because of your title of being touch, that that called your attention. And I was sharing before you came on that I moved to Venezuela early in my career and people there kiss on one side. They do one kiss, you know, in some countries it's two kisses in some countries it's three. I mean, like, it just I means some people that's the norm, but I felt that was so weird to be kissing somebody you don't know. And then I got used to it and then I left the country. So these customs, how does that affect the whole concept of touch? Like, how do you know whether you should shake hands or kiss somebody or not? None of the above. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those really complicated questions, right? I mean, I think touch is something that we use from our earliest moments of life, but it becomes perhaps one of the most complicated um, tools that we use for communication, right? I mean, touch as it happens is with us literally from the moment we're born. It's one of the first senses we develop, but pretty quickly in life, I think we can learn it is complicated. And you've alluded to one thing there, right? So culture, cultural differences can have a big impact on how we touch. I mean, 
there's all these components like kissing on the cheeks, like you alluded to, but even something like a handshake, right? Handshakes are something that in Western cultures we often take for granted as maybe a kind of common greeting that we all do. But in some Asian countries, something like a hard handshake, that can be considered rude. And some countries go for longer handshakes than others. And things. Like so there's a delicate balance that we learn along the way. And COVID probably showed us that a bit as well, right? Even in Western countries, there was a big debate then, right? Are we going to handshake? Are we going to go back to that? You know? I know. Let me read this quote. This is from Michael's book. I don't think we should ever shake hands again, to be honest with you, said Dr. Anthony Fauci, April of 2020. So three years ago, that's what we were told. And I can say up until that point, I was fine with shaking hands. But you then, with the COVID, we envision all these germs that we're transmitting or receiving, and it just became like, ah. And I want to share one story since we're on the COVID topic. I was at the beach. This was probably in June of 2020. Open air. And I saw a friend because you know everybody had been locked down all these months. And I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a long, long, long time. And I ran up and gave her a hug. And then I felt like, oh, oh my gosh, I've just hugged somebody. And I apologize. And then ever since then, it's been weird for me. I want our readers to know that Michael gives a lot of information about healthy touch. I would say most of the book is not about work per se, but about life and health and relationships. He has this chapter, Can Hugs Conquer the Common Cold? So was that started before COVID? Yeah, so... Amazingly, I mean, the research on touch, I mean, COVID maybe put it in the spotlight for a lot of us, but there'd been work on it from well before. So some of work going back to like 2015, there was work coming out showing that people that hug more regularly, they tend to be able to better fight off infections than people that hug less regularly, which kind of sounds counterintuitive, I guess, with COVID where we were told, hey, don't hug, hey, don't do those things. But actually, these are studies looking more at something like the common cold. And what they did basically was they recorded how often people hugged for two weeks and then they brought people in and they gave them all a virus. They gave them the cold <laughs> and they quarantined them and gave these people a cold and they monitored how did the virus develop from there. And what they found was the people that were hugging more regularly from two weeks before were less likely to develop some of the virus symptoms. And part of that was because actually these people were feeling more socially supported going into getting the virus and actually having that social connection around you, having that social support and bring these benefits. We see it in other ways as well. Build your immune system, Michael, and just... Yes, well, part of the reason it might do it is, is actually to do with how we respond to stressful situations. So there's a lot of work now showing that if we receive hugs from other people, or even if we hug ourselves before a stressful event, that can lower stress hormones. So that can lower things like cortisol during that stressful event. So people that engage in that kind of hugging compared to, let's say, not hugging or compared to other control conditions, like even somebody giving you verbal support, these types of scenarios, those can be helpful, of course, but that tactile component can really bring us down. And so if we're less stressed, if we've got less inflammation in the body, all these kind of things may potentially be helpful to fight up things like infection and so forth. So there's quite a few studies now, not just looking at things like the common cold, but also looking at how we respond to stress. 
There's also studies now looking at markers of inflammation. So let's say if we cut our hand, for instance, our body might get inflammation. That's okay. That's a natural response. But over time, if inflammation is chronic, that can be problematic, right? And there's now studies showing people that hug more regularly, they show lower markers of chronic inflammation and things like this as well. So there's something special and unique about it because we might just think, oh, when a hug feels good, right? We might like that sensation. We might like somebody holding our hand. We might say, hey, that just feels nice. But actually, whether it's hugging, whether it's holding hands, all these types of things have been shown to have stress buffering effects. They can reduce anxiety. They can increase daily mood, which has knock-on effects dead in the world of work, has knock-on effects in our relationships, has knock-on effects all over, right? Right. So I just want to sum up this up for everybody. Like hugs are healthy. Don't do it right now. You have to finish listening to this conversation, <laughs> but you need to go out and hug somebody. And Michael in his book writes about this scenario. Some of you may have seen it. I haven't ever seen it. I am sure if I did see it, I would not indulge, but it says something like free hugs. And that to me is just so bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and for an introvert as well, it was a bit unusual for me to be fair, but I think at the time I was a little bit jet lagged. I just got to Australia. I was walking around somewhat jet lagged. This was a bit of a difficult time in life, actually. I'd just come out of a big long-term relationship and I was kind of pondering where things were going, right? Okay. And you're kind of pondering it. And I saw out the corner of my eye, just this person standing in the park. It was a beautiful park, admittedly. Gorgeous. And that probably helped a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So he was not being himself. In other words, he's like, <laughs> normally I wouldn't do this. Normally, but... normally I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it on a cold winter's day in England. I mean, in Australia, with the sun beaming down, I guess I saw this person with a free hug sign. I thought, why the hell not? I don't know them. I don't know me. And I just had this free hug in the park and yeah, it just kind of set me on my way. But the story behind it is very similar to that because it all started with an individual who was coming home for a party one night, feeling really quite depressed and quite low, and a stranger gave them a hug. And they said it had this such an effect on them that they, they started going to the mall with these free hug signs, and it really took off. It didn't just happen in Australia. There's people in the US that do it. Even now, you get free hugs and things like this. Yeah, I've heard of that. I just haven't seen it. It's all about just encouraging that kind of... I suppose, kindness of strangers. And of course, if you feel uncomfortable, it's going to be a very different thing. You know, you don't just want to go grabbing a hug, but there's, there's a balance to be struck in that. One of the interesting things we touched, though, is some of these benefits that we're speaking about, like buffering against anxiety or stress, they're not just seen for hugging, right? They're seen for things like hand holding. They can be found for things like massage as well. So the fact that there's a diversity of ways we can benefit means that we can kind of tailor to our own touch preferences. And perhaps that might not be a stranger hugging you in a park. That might need to be a partner holding your hand, or maybe that's a good friend of yours giving you a hug every once in a while. It's about finding the right balance for you. That's the key. If hugs are freaking you out, you don't have to have <laughs> hugs. But you might learn to like it because I'll tell you guys that in his research in this book, he talks about it's good for children, for older people, it's healthy, makes you healthier, basically, the touch when it's, of course, a healthy touch, when it's a friendly, appropriate touch, even goes into high-performing teams. Now, of course, Laura thought, oh, you mean work teams, but what he meant was sports teams. So tell us about how did you even form that hypothesis about touch for basketball, or I think that was basketball that I read. Yeah, it was basketball. Yeah, it's quite a famous example now. It's a study of uh, men's NBA basketball teams. And it was a study that basically they were looking at 
tactile behaviors that teammates shared in the early season. So they were looking at things like fist bumps, high fives, you know, like placing your hands on top of each other, those types of tactile behaviors. Basically, the researchers coded how often those happened in the early season games. What they found was that the teams who showed more of those types of positive touches, as they called them, you know, those that had more at the start of the season, went on to win more games as the season unfolded. Individuals performed better, the teams performed better. And part of the reason for that is potentially because actually teams that touch more, and this has come out of other work that's followed since, there's a kind of greater sense of you can use touch as a way to build team cohesion. You can feel closer to your teammates, you can have more trust in your teammates. And this has been seen not just in the NBA, it's been seen in things like lacrosse, hockey, netball, pretty consistently positive tactile behaviors. And again, we're going to go back to that point about it's what the team or the individuals find positive when coaches use those types of behaviors in a way that supports their athletes, that can be helpful. But of course, there's a lot of nuance to that. We've already mentioned culture being a factor. I think probably all of us in the world of work, let's just step away from basketball teams from and think about the world of work. We might have colleagues that might need an arm around their shoulder or that extra bit of support. We might have some who really want us to stand off and not have that type of conversation, right? So there's a balance to be struck here. And that's also seen in the sporting world as well. But Nevertheless, touch can be a really powerful instrument to build things like trust, cohesion, teamwork, and that plays out in some of these sports settings. All right. So just a little side note here. Michael said that was a well-known study. I personally didn't know anything about it. So I want to know if you in the audience <laughs> knew about this study, please let me know. <laughs> Saying I didn't just make this up. This is a confirmed, important, well-known research. So that brings me to a question, Michael do we incorporate this at work? Because as you're saying that it builds cohesion. And so I'm going back to my stint in corporate America. And yes, after I got to know people, I would feel less awkward and I was okay with the hugs. But I want you to talk about work in general and hybrid work. Because as a communication coach, I've had so many people, it's a little bit less now, but a lot of people asking for my help to lay some wisdom on us. Yeah, it's a real challenge, isn't it, right? I mean, how do we approach touch at work, even before COVID? Because I think for a lot of us, and rightly so, there was a lot of touch skepticism that was built. Oh, I love that, touch skepticism. Yes. Yeah, and I think that was perfectly valid. You know, I mean, we heard time and time again about how people have maybe abused their license to touch at work. And of course, nobody wants to see really kind of extreme examples of sexual harassment or anything like that in the workplace. We want to be really careful there and make sure that the policies are in place to mitigate against that type of behavior. Nevertheless, there are some types of tactile behaviors we might feel comfortable with, like people shaking hands, right? That might be something we're open to. We might be open to a pat on the shoulder. And these types of gestures do carry quite prominent signals. I mean, Touch can be a really powerful way to convey emotions like sympathy and emotional sincerity and gratitude. And those types of emotions, sharing those in the workplace can be really beneficial for workplace performance because if someone shows they appreciate you and you genuinely believe that, that can mean better job retention, that can mean better performance, that can mean all sorts of different factors. So we want to try and find ways to strike that balance, right, of how can we get the best bits but avoid those negatives. And for me, I think a key part of that is trying to build the right spaces in the workplace where we can actually have conversations about touch because I don't think we often stop and do that. So when I work with organizations, some of the things that I do in the first instance is just try and get 
a few kind of conversation starters going around touch with them so that we can better understand what does actually touch mean and what is appropriate, what's not appropriate in the workplace and what does it mean for us? So that's kind of saying things like what ways can we use touch to enhance communication and build stronger relationships? Just start with those kind of questions. Then maybe dig a bit deeper into what are some of the cultural considerations that might make a difference to this and start then working our way through about what types of, I suppose, other risks or challenges might be there. So we try to better gain that awareness. But before that happens, to be honest, one of the most important things that we always need to start with with touch is to actually ask about our own experiences, our own preferences, because we need to understand ourselves. How do we feel about touch? Because a lot of the time we bring our previous experiences into the mix. We bring all sorts of factors into it. And it's quite easy for us to map our own preferences onto other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We all tend to have biases, not just with touch, but with other things as well. And so we want to learn about our own preferences as a starting point to then start to learn about others and consider those types of questions and then hopefully start to build these kind of appropriate spaces in the workplace where we can have these discussions to facilitate better tactile communication. I love that. Tactile communication. Yes, I just had a flashback. I remember, again, this was back in the corporate days. There was this leader who would sometimes like give a little shoulder massage to people. Oh, <laughs> I never was on the receiving end of that. I'm sure I gave out porcupine body language signals to him and other people. <laughs> Don't mess with me. But was he just trying to reduce their stress? Did he have some other goal? I don't know. But that was definitely not appropriate. No shoulder massages, folks. I had read before that touching the arm of someone between the elbow and the shoulder have a big impact, right? That they're feeling like you said that, oh, this person cares about me. They're being sincere. Even though if you're doing it, are you being manipulative or are you trying to show that you care about the person? Yeah, there's a challenge in that, right? How do we read it? Because a lot of this is done in consumer settings, actually. It's done where like a member of wait staff might very briefly touch a customer and they give them the bill. And when they do that, they receive more tips, right? Higher tips. Yes, that's in the book too. Yes, more money, folks. The wait staff who would lightly touch. So that's definitely caught my attention. But then you said that at least in one study, the wait staff that made more money because they were told to touch the clients didn't like it because they felt like they were being manipulative. And that's the thing. So if you run a restaurant, don't don't automatically assume <laughs> telling don't automatically telling your wait staff. Because the other thing is that in some bars, it's been shown that those brief touches lead to people to let's say consume more alcohol and even in shops spend more money and stuff like this. But in other work, it has been shown if you force your staff to do it, it can actually lead them to feel more uncomfortable about touching, which means that then they say, oh, even more uncomfortable about the interaction as a whole. So then they stop interacting with the customers. <laughs> And then they quit. Yeah, exactly. So I think we're going to strike about, I mean, it's just getting that nuance right in this. But it is true that brief touches can exert powerful effects. And we've mentioned handshakes a few times, but even something like a handshake, right? There's work now showing that if you bring people into a negotiation setting and you get them to handshake or not handshake, those that handshake tend to lean in more. They tend to kind of have more things, more head nods, and they come to more mutual agreement than people that don't. And 
part of that is that these tactile behaviors signal a gesture, right? They've been with us for so many years, signaling things like trust, cooperation, and they help us build those bonds from a very early exchange. And we might not even think those handshakes are going to have those effects, but there's also been work showing that in job interview settings, people's handshakes prior to the interview will predict the outcome of the interview 30 minutes later. Oh my goodness. Crazy, right? Yes. 30 minutes later. But it all plays out, all these very subtle effects. And again, some of that is because touch is this very hidden nonverbal signal. When we talk about nonverbal emotions, we often talk about body posture. We talk about facial emotions. We talk about things like this. But touch is really powerful as well. There are some studies showing that for certain emotions, I've mentioned sympathy before, touch is more powerful than the face or the body cues. So if you're listening to someone and you're trying to convey good listening, right? And we know conveying good listening can really make a big difference to how people perform at work, to how people feel in their, in their relationships as a whole, right? Touch is a really powerful way to help with that. And of course, you could argue, as, as you mentioned at the very start, what if someone tries to manipulate us doing that? But arguably, I would say we could ask that question about anything, right? If we know that good listening is from my like head nodding and things like that, well, are people manipulating us when they nod their heads? Well, I don't think they are. I trust people enough. I mean, there's going to be some unscrupulous people out there that will pick up on these things and try that. But I kind of got enough space in humanity to think that most of us will try and use these things a bit more naturally because I think we can tell when someone's faking it as well, right? Sometimes we can kind of pick up on that. Right, and everything can be manipulative. But I yeah. love that you mentioned, listen closely, everyone, to convey good listening because some of us introverts tend to be better listeners overall. But it is possible, and I have been in this situation, and it's extremely frustrating when I was listening, but because I couldn't solve the person's problem in this moment, this was a technical job years and years ago, but I still remember being told with the finger at me, you know, you were not listening, but I was. It's just that I couldn't fix it. So you can convey the listening because it's one thing to listen and another thing that the person feels heard exactly get the touch right that can help yeah there's all sorts of factors i mean yeah things like touch things like head nodding how you use eye it's a mixture of different features when it comes to listening right listening is a very complicated skill and that's also part of the reason why listening is hard to train actually there's a lot of people that try to train listening but less data on the outcomes of the training which is quite interesting <laughs> yes and to everybody's credit like some people take forever to get to the point. <laughs> and so some people are easier to listen to than others. So yeah, that is a very complicated skill, one that we could all get better at. I want to circle back to this one thing you said a few minutes ago, forgive me for jumping around, but what kind of touch do you think conveys good communication? How does that work? There's all sorts of different ways to do it. And I think you need to adapt it to your team, actually. And you kind of want to look at your team and kind of tailor the questions. I mean, in the book, one of the things I also talk about is we have some questions. We have touch personas. So we give people these different personas of different people. And we kind of start to play around with those personas as a way to actually explore what touch means. So it's almost like, well, let's say you've got someone who's a very, you know, they're a hugger, right? They're a very tactile person as a persona, but maybe you've got another person who's very much more doesn't want touch, for the real don't touch me. And you can kind of say, well, which persona am I closer to? If I behave in this context, which persona comes out more? But you could also think about, well, what if we had this type of persona interacting with this persona? How would we approach it? So you can use personas as a way to try to understand it. If that's easy, there's also kind of measures out there that ask people about their attitudes and experiences to touch. 
there's one of these which I kind of, I've adapted in the book for a kind of short quiz version of it, but we've used some of those with over 50,000 people now around the world. So it's like, but there's big data sets that can tap onto these psychometrics that can help people. Or yeah, you can just try and really build those spaces and have the conversations. And I think in the first instance, actually just trying to engage in those conversations is a really important part because there can be a tendency sometimes to almost throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to touch because it's like, well, there's all these risks of touch. Let's let's get rid of it completely. And, exactly. And that was my first reaction. Like, I am not touching anybody ever again. <laughs> yeah. And I came across this when I was like, writing the book because I didn't include this in the book in the but I did hear about like schools in the US, for instance, where there was a situation where two students had a fight and students ended up getting suspended from school, which I kind of thought, that fight, that makes sense, right? Turned out that they didn't get suspended for fighting. They got suspended for hugging the teacher after the fight. Yeah. And you start to think, okay, well, maybe we've gone a bit too far one way with some of this. And so I think it's really important now that we try and actually bring researchers and organizations, be that schools, be that other kind of profit organizations and so forth and, and companies, to actually have conversations that do research around touching the workplace. Because surprisingly, it's a lot of it. And I talk about it in the book, there is some, but we've done some ourselves. But I think we need to kind of build more of an understanding by building those interactions between companies and researchers to build the data, work collectively together to help people get a better understanding of touching the workplace because it does carry some benefits when it's done appropriately. We're just going to find the balance. Right. The benefits, folks, are off the charts. It's out of the ballpark. Michael presents a plethora of, he goes above and beyond as far as backing up this claim with research. I think the timing of your message in the book, you can tell from reading it that this wrote parts of it before COVID or it seems that way. And then we had the lockdown and then he went back. But I think we need a reset because there's so much awkwardness and people not knowing and not wanting to hurt others. I think we're erring on the side of keeping our distance because it was just so drilled and that's this social distancing six feet yeah. away. I've even noticed like in lines at Starbucks or something, people tend to really have at least three or four feet of distance between them when it's not really necessary or even ideal given the number of people you know waiting. So even though you might have despaired with the lockdown and your research, I think at the end, it's coming out at a really good time. But I want you to address a particular situation. And I know we're getting to the end of our time, but this is an important situation. It affects a lot of people listening that they mostly work remotely. And then every once in a while, be it once a week, twice a week, or once a quarter, or once every six months, they get together with their team to have team building and meetings. Should a person ask permission to hug? Let's say that you don't have the opportunity to have the tactile communication conversation yet. What should we do? That's a meaty question. Depends somewhat on the norm of the organization that you're in, right? So if you're in a very much no-touch organization, then don't start just hugging randomly. I mean, that's not going to work. I tend to actually think it's much more these days about actually almost asking in the setting, right? Because I think we've probably all seen scenarios whereby do we handshake, do we fist bump? <laughs> what do we do, oh, right? Oh, all the time. I think that type of behavior, maybe we can make a bit of a joke out of that. Oh, look, we do now, kind of saying you can kind of naturally build that. But I think then once you start building up to something maybe slightly more physically closer, like a hug or something like that, 
then I think there's added layers to that, right? Because there's COVID, but there's also for a lot of people, hugging in a professional setting just isn't going to be the dumb thing, right? And I think I wouldn't automatically, as a norm, just jump into that activity. I think you've got to judge your surroundings and scenarios. So if it's quite a tactile workplace to begin with, maybe it's a different deal to hug somebody. But I think if begin with, it's a pretty kind of standard, we might shake hands type of interaction. Then I think at this stage, it's kind of originally asking those questions of what do we shake here? Do we wave? Do we high five? Do we nod? The key is trying to really show that you're acknowledging and paying attention to what the other person wants, right? And you're responding to it because then you're listening, right? You are listening. You're saying, right, I'm reading the situation. I'm taking the time and making the effort to judge your boundaries and pay attention to that. And if I'm not sure, I'm going to ask because actually I'm better off to ask than invade your boundary and do something that makes you feel uncomfortable, particularly if we haven't seen each other for months and this is our first time getting together as a company. And that's part of building psychological safety, right? It's building a safe space because then once you build that safety, you can have those conversations about touching the workplace. You can, you can build up to it, but it's got to be a comfortable space for your team in the first place. Which I think a big takeaway from this conversation is to have conversations about communication. Now we can include tactile, especially if you're going to have an on-site or especially at some you know, companies are actually back at the office. And I think that the manufacturing concerns where they've been basically going as normal throughout this last few years, they probably have fewer issues. I work with technology and finance and service companies. So that's where we're all freaked out about what to do. <laughs> so now we know. I want you to have the last word. You're talking to highly conscientious, high performers who are always looking to learn, to do their job better. And I'm sure more than a few are touch skeptics out there, but then there's probably some huggers that are like, thank you, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> so is there something that you think people should know? Well, we've covered a lot, right? I think we've covered the health benefits. We've covered the work benefits. I mean, the key for me is that touch is probably one of our most overlooked senses. We don't often take notice of it, but we rely on it every day of our lives. It helps ground us at home. It helps us in our relationships. Um, it also carries over into the workplace. It can be a really powerful indicator. It will have powerful impacts on workplace performance, on things like how sincere a leader can be perceived you know, how you convey things like gratitude and all of these things can have big impacts on our daily workplace lives. So in the end, I guess my main message group is that touch matters. Yes. What a novel thought. Touch matters. Yeah, yes. Exactly. But of course, in all your behaviors with touch, you know, I think it's about trying to think about balancing the fact that it is very nuanced still, right? And although naturally not everyone's going to want to touch, and we've got to be really mindful of that. And I think even if we build a workplace culture where we're happy with touch to take place. We do want to give everyone the option to opt out, right? At least they've had a natural normal edge. I don't want to do that because there are these histories that we do bring to it that just will be hidden to us. We just won't know, you know. And yeah, someone stroking our arm might feel really lovely, but someone else, that can feel really awful, right? Right, and it might depend on who's doing the stroking. Exactly, so... of course. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to stroke someone in the office. Let's not go there. No arm stroking at the on-site, folks. <laughs> That's not what we're saying. Touch does matter, but it is nuanced. It's a little complicated right now. I mean, I think it's always been complicated, but I do think that there's more sensitivity, not only for health issues, but also, you know, sexual harassment issues and 
there's just a lot to it. But you folks listening, I know that you love a challenge and you love learning. So here's something that if you get it right, though, you can really make the world a better place because there are so many benefits to positive touch and to the touch that's in the right place at the right moment, done the right way. And I encourage you all to go out and touch someone today. So, Michael, if someone wants to ask you more questions or bring you to their company to talk about touch, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. So they can just reach me at banasy.com. So it's uh, B-A-N-I-S-S-Y.com. The easiest name to spell every time. <laughs> but yeah, all the information about the work we do is there. And there's information about the book on the website as well and ways to get in touch and contact me. And we'd be very happy to talk to anyone about it. All right. Well, thank you so much for timing in. Where in the UK are you? Yes, I'm just outside London at the moment. I actually just got back from the US, so I'm slightly jet-lagged. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, you've done very well, and I really appreciate you coming on. And so, everyone, as always, you're welcome. You know, this has just been a super value-laden conversation about touch. Touch does matter. It's not intuitive, necessarily, how to get it right. So go out and consider touch, have a conversation about it, and I will catch you on the next episode. <laughs>